Good evening, everyone. Am I on? Yes, thank you. Well done, Duncan. Welcome here tonight um, to St. Peter's Free Church of Scotland. Glad that you're here. Uh, We're going to begin our service together by singing um, a version of Psalm 134 by Ian White. We stand to sing, Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. be seated. Our call to worship comes from Sabbath day psalm. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp, for you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, may you enlighten us to think about what your hands have done, how, metaphorically speaking, you poked holes in the universe and planted stars in there. But the reality is 
far, far much more wonderful than that poetic license. You, you brought all out of nothing. You brought order out of chaos. You spoke a word and things came into being. You spoke a blessing and the animals found their purpose. You spoke a blessing and man and woman made in your image after your likeness found a purpose. And you bless the seventh day so that all creation may begin with blessing. We bless you in return for blessing us. We praise your name. We lift up our hands in praise to echo your hands in creation. We start our week in the beginning of a new week reminding us that the new creation has already begun on the resurrection day and we're counting down the days until he comes again and we see him face to face, our Lord Jesus, full of glory and majesty, not to suffer again but to reign, to destroy ultimately and finally all the works of the devil and to transform a waiting and joyful people into his likeness for happiness. We thank you that you come into the chaos of our life, which sadly we know we often bring it to ourselves through our sinfulness and disobedience, but you come into the chaos of our life and you speak a word of blessing and you bring order and purpose, salvation and rescue, hope and confidence. All these things we need to hear again tonight as we say the name of Jesus in our prayers and in our praises, as we hear the name of Jesus declared to us. We wait for you tonight. We wait upon you. We look to your hand as the eyes of a servant would look to their mistress or master. We look to our Lord until he gives us mercy and help to worship him. So come, Lord, in the presence of your Holy Spirit, enlighten our dead eyes, illuminate our dark hearts, and enable our lame feet to run in the paths of your commandments. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Bernard is going to read to us now from Numbers, and he'll announce the page number. Tonight we are continuing our readings in the book of Numbers, and we come to chapter 15, and this can be found in the Church Bible on page 151. The story so far, uh, just to recap, is that um, despite God's... um, telling of the children of Israel to take the promised land, and despite the witness of Caleb and Joshua, the people have disobeyed the Lord, they've murmured against him, and uh, so God has punished them, and they're going to be wandering around for another 40 years before they enter the promised land. And so this chapter, chapter 15, entitled Supplementary Offering, seems to be um, in a little strange place, because the opening verses tell um, what they should do, 
when they enter the, foreign, uh, the promised land. And as we read these few verses, uh, it's about um, sacrifice of animals. And you'll notice lots of details about what should be done and what shouldn't be done, all with the aim of making the offerings pleasing to the Lord. And while we don't make animal sacrifices now because of the sacrifice of our Savior, the Lord, it does remind us that all our worship should be um, to please him. And it's not as if anything will do. We seek to make our worship uh, pleasing to the Lord. So let's read God's word, Numbers 15 from the first verse. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, After you enter the land I am giving you as a home, and you present to the Lord offerings made by fire from the herd or the flock, as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, whether burnt offerings or sacrifices, for special vows or freewill offerings or festival offerings, then the one who brings his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil. With each lamb for the burnt offering or the sacrifice, prepare a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. With a ram, prepare a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil and a third of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Offer it as aroma pleasing to the Lord. When you prepare a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice for a special vow or a fellowship offering to the Lord, bring the bull with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil. Also bring half a hin of wine as a drink offering. It will be an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Each bull or ram, each lamb or young goat is to be prepared in this manner. Do this for each one, for as many as you prepare. Everyone who is native-born must do these things in this way when he brings an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. For the generations to come, whenever an alien or anyone else living among you presents an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, he must do exactly as you do. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the alien living among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the alien shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply both to you and to the alien living among you. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land to which I am taking you, and you eat the food of the land, present a portion as an offering to the Lord. Present a cake from the first of your ground meal, and present it as an offering from the threshing floor. Throughout the generations to come, you are to give this offering to the Lord from the first of your ground meal. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bernard. I'm going to look at some notices now. Um, have you got them there, Stuart? Okay. 
I'm trying to remember what the three things three things are. Right. So the um, church summer prayer meetings this coming Wednesday. Caroline White will be speaking at the prayer meeting here in the church. Um, so it won't be a, the usual format. But it'll be a different one. Um, so presentation of her work and ministry. Um, we're looking forward to that. So come along at seven if you'd like some coffee and uh, informal chat. And we will finish. We hope and pray by. Um, an hour after 7.30, which if my arithmetic goes well, that's about 10 o'clock at night, according to Presbyterian time. Um, St. Meadows, that's a little village just outside Perth and between Perth and Dundee, and that's a new centre, church centre there, so keep that in your diary for the congregational outing, um, and it's got prices or details of uh, money there. If you know uh, of someone who is in need um, and would like to come, but maybe... Uh, couldn't afford to come, then let me know, please, and we'll, we'll sort something out anonymously. Okay, that's fine. Kirk session will meet this coming Tuesday, just to remind you, the elders, to do that. And I think these are all our announcements. Let's pray together. Let's pray. We think of these offerings that were made seem so unusual, so beyond our experience. Think of what Paul said, how he thought of himself as a a poured out drink offering on on the top of the worship of the Philippians. We think of what he said, um, as we were reminded this morning about filling up in his body that which is lacking with regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church, Christ's body. And we remind ourselves again, as you remind us, that you call us to sacrifice, to give away that which we could otherwise keep out of love and out of grace, to pour out ourselves on behalf of others and for your glory to learn what your will is so that we may please you in all spiritual worship and service. And so in our prayers, we pour out these offerings to you. Help us to remember when you answer. We remember to pray for Caroline this evening and for her speaking to us come Wednesday. For those who will attend, that it will be a time of enlightenment and encouragement, and that Caroline herself will be blessed, both in preparing for this and in the time together with us on Wednesday. Thank you for Callum Bowsey being here tonight and with us this weekend, and how, how, how much a joy that is to see him again, and how wonderful it is that we can pick up with our Christian friends, even after being apart for a while, and it's like we've never been apart. We ask you to continue to lead and guide him and bless him um, as he seeks your will for the future. We pray for our fellowship here, for those who are in need, those who are grieving. And there are many. Remember Alistair 
and Rosemary and the family. We remember those who are unwell. And likewise, there are many, some with uh, deep concerns and anxieties for their health and for their future, others with chronic conditions that never seem to have any betterment. And we pray for peace and grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember our young families and we give you thanks that there are youngsters on the way. We pray for the mothers and for the families. We pray for health. As you have reminded us in the story of St. Peter's, there was a time before we prayed for this when terrible tragedy took place and in your mercy we want to avoid any of those and so earnestly we ask you for health and strength. We pray that there'll be a time of blessing for our young people on holiday. We pray that you'll keep them safe, even though they may have lovely adventures, may they not have any harm. We pray that you will grant the gift of long-suffering and patience to parents if they need it, and um, you'll help them too. Thank you that in our life you are far more willing and ready to bless us than you are to do us harm. And to our folly and shame, sometimes we listen to the voice of the evil one saying, you want to harm us. What a lie and a damnable lie. Help us not to listen to that voice, but to remind ourselves that you are the God of all kindness and blessing. And you have given us no greater gift than you could possibly give us in giving Jesus to die for us and to be raised as the eternal high priest, ministering by night and by day in prayer for your people. So we thank you for all that we have, and we make our prayers in his name, praying that he will need add nothing to us, And we will have subtracted nothing from his prayers. And so we will receive what we most earnestly ask for. In his name again. Amen. So we're going to stand again and sing, uh, The Battle Belongs to the Lord.
Okay, before Alistair comes and uh, preaches tonight, we're going to stand again and sing unaccompanied part of Psalm 18, verses 1 to 6, and your offerings will be uplifted as we sing the song together. So let's stand to sing. Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah and chapter 4 on page 488 of the Church Bibles. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. The, The translation is slightly different, but very much the same. I'm just going to read some of the verses of chapter 4 in Nehemiah just to save some time at the outset. So let's look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, reading uh, from the beginning. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, 
And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And just uh, further down in the chapter at verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know it, sorry, they will not know or see it till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sisters, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And a little bit further down at verse 21, so we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant Pass the night within Jerusalem, so that there may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Amen. Now before we turn to look at this passage. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer to God. Let's pray. It is our desire, Lord, that you would send forth your light and your truth. We pray, O oh Lord, that uh, with the psalmist, we would, uh, ask, we would ask you to show us your ways, O oh Lord. Teach us in your paths. Therein be our teacher, and lead us and guide us. Humble us as we hear what God the Lord is saying to us through your word. Watch over us and open our minds and our hearts to receive and to respond to your word in accordance with your will. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank Harry for standing in for me when in uh, a, an unplanned absence last week through bereavement in the family. And uh, I don't think it could be much more appropriate than for an architect or a former ar architect to lead us in this study in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, perhaps Stuart could put the, the slide up, it is up. And uh, this is, in, this is, I borrowed this from Harry, 
uh, and the one I was going to put up is very similar, but this one's actually in color. And I don't know how well you can make out the writing, but I'm sure Harry's taking you uh, in accordance with the way the, the wall was uh, being built in the previous chapter, chapter 3, in an anti-clockwise direction, starting at the Sheep Gate and working round from the Sheep Gate up until we reach uh, the Sheep Gate again. Uh, one commentator has, has uh, referred to this diagram of uh, the way Jerusalem was in the time of Nehemiah. I don't know if Harry may have mentioned this, but it's like a footprint. And the big toe is where the sheep gate was. Uh, that's the left footprint. So if, if, there's any, if that's of any help to you, so be it. But uh, let's follow the footprints of Nehemiah as he shows us what's been happening here. This was a huge project by any standards. And the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in, in Nehemiah's time uh, could be compared with, uh, imagine the rebuilding to some extent of a, a city in ruins in our own day and age. And this uh, diagram of uh, uh, Jerusalem is only representative of what Jerusalem used to be. The amount of ground that it used to cover uh, historically was about four or five times that sort of area. There are various projects, uh, building projects going on. I was up the A9 just a, f a few days, up and down the A9 a few days ago, and there's a huge building project going on there, dueling uh, a stretch from Perth, northwards. And if any of you have been there, you'll see the, the amount of operation, operation and uh, plant machinery and so on and so forth, and the number of people that are involved. Now, there were no JCBs in Nehemiah's time, no diggers, no hydraulics, nothing like that. So you can imagine at this level, the amount of work that was involved, uh, that's uh, uh, recorded for us in chapter 3, and the number of people and families that uh, were involved. This was not Nehemiah's work. It was the Lord's work. It was God's project, and God uses human agency to bring forward his own plans. The objective of rebuilding the wall had to be and was God-focused. He wanted God, that is, wanted his glory uh, to be reinstated, as it were, because the symbolism of the ruined city was showing, in a sense, that uh, the glory of God was in some way diminished uh, or even destroyed. But that wasn't the case. Sadly, the people had been taken captive and God's judgment had been upon them because of their disobedience historically earlier on. We know from the previous book in the Bible, the book of Ezra, that the temple had been uh, rebuilt. This is the place where God, so to speak, dwelt amongst his people. It was the place of worship and sacrifice. And that aspect of their lives was central to 
their reason for existence, worship and sacrifice at that time. God wanted his people to be made safe uh, from their enemies and the walls of Jerusalem had to be rebuilt. He wanted his people to uh, be protected from uh, external opposition uh, so that they could live in peace and prosperity within the city walls of Jerusalem. Now, without uh, going back to chapter 3, but just mentioning it to bring us into this chapter, uh, the, the organization of the work was outlined there, and Nehemiah's leadership, and above all, the Lord's oversight of all that was going on. And in the words of Luther's hymn, which we'll be singing later on, a mighty fortress was to be rebuilt, and uh, it was to signify the saving work of God, as Isaiah puts it in chapter 60 of his prophecy. Isaiah, who prophesied many years before that, three or four hundred years before this event took place, a mighty fortress was to be built, and Isaiah recorded these words, violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders, you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Salvation by God and praise to God was to be the focus of uh, the people. This is what they were to experience, and this is what they were to do. And this, of course, was Isaiah looking forward prophetically to the account we have of the heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation 21. So the work that we have here recorded uh, post-Babylonian captivity goes on into the New Testament uh, under the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we see from Scripture, from the New Testament Scriptures, that as God was behind the work uh, with Nehemiah, the human overseer, so God in Christ is the architect and builder of his church. So our architect is none other than Jehovah Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 4 relates uh, to us uh, straight away a difference from chapter 3. It relates to us the opposition that arose against this God-ordained work and uh, God-ordained actions that were to be taken by Nehemiah. And the opposition not only arose against the work and the people, and we see here the reality and negative effect uh, that this opposition has, and yet, nevertheless, it was to be resisted. I want to use three headings uh, in summary of what I want to talk about from this chapter tonight. There is far more than we'll be able to cover in roughly half an hour, so please bear with me. The headings I want to use, first of all, are conflict. That's what we we find right at the outset of the chapter. The second heading I want to use is communion. Where do we find that coming through? Well, hopefully we'll see in a few minutes. And the third thing I want to look at is consolidation. Conflict, communion, and consolidation. First of all, 
conflict. Well, here we have it, right at the beginning. Verse 1, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. There was something from without that was causing uh, them to, to be, as it were, defocused from what they were doing. A conflict between two opposing values is what we have here, something that is seen right through the pages of the Bible. It's a, con- uh, uh, a conflict between two principles, the principles of good and evil. We're not talking in Star Wars language here as well, uh, at all. But we're talking about the reality of light and darkness, the reality of life and death, and they're coming one against the other. This is no, nothing less than the battle that Jesus came to fight and win for his people. It's God and the devil. God, uh, the devil uh, in the per, in the, in the personified by these characters that we have here, Sanballat and Tobiah. We came across them earlier on uh, in chapter 2, around verse 10. Uh, when Nehemiah was inspecting the wall. I came to the governors, this is verse 9 of chapter 2, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And here we find in verse 1 that Sanballat was angry and greatly enraged. That is how the devil is against any work that is of the Lord. Perhaps we underestimate the enmity that we have against the spiritual forces of evil. So right at the beginning of chapter 4 and in direct contrast to the end of chapter 3, which seemed to to be ending on a positive note, uh, where people were working one after the other, as it were, hand in hand, in a figuratively speaking way. Yet, right at the beginning of chapter 4, we find the spoiler, the accuser, the destroyer, making his move. Uh, I don't know how many of you, I'm not a chess player as such, but uh, it was my brother who taught me to play chess in some uh, very uh, rudimentary form. And for some reason, I always wanted to have the white pieces, not the black ones. So if we can think of it in that sort of way, Nehemiah was, uh, had all the white pieces, and Sanballat and Tobiah, whom we come across later on in this chapter, had the black pieces. And Here they were making their move, trying to get the upper hand on the work that was going on in the building of this wall. These two antagonists, Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, are still in existence in the New Testament church in various ways. And we have to be careful because they're agents of the devil, and the devil has his agents 
uh, using them against the work of the gospel, the work of the church, uh, the construction of the church of which Jesus said on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But what we find is that they were deeply uh, enraged. Uh, your, trans- your NIV translation, we have it differently. He was angry and greatly enraged. We sometimes use the word incandescent when somebody is really, really raging. And that is the kind of description we have here portraying the forces of evil that are against the church. So when they heard that a man wanted to help the people of Jerusalem in chapter 2, they, they were angry. And here we have the same thing. And not only is their anger evident, and of course we don't like when we see anger, whether it is in human beings or when we see a wildlife, when we're, uh, we're told to keep clear of certain, uh, uh, certain uh, animals because of their tendency uh, to be angry if provoked in the least sort of way. And in a sense, that is what was happening here. They didn't like the light of the positive work of construction. They didn't like the light that Nehemiah was given by God to lead his people. They used not only uh, opposition in terms of language, but they used their language as scorn and intimidation to prevent the work from starting. In chapter 2 and at verse 19, just going back to chapter 2, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. Oh, there's a third one as well. The devil's agents are many. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Sorry to go over your territory again, Harry. But I think this is what was happening here. It's just basically more detail about the attitude of, of these people, the conflict, the opposition. And they were using mockery. Uh, they were furious. They were indignant. And they were jeering. It was part of their arsenal and still is very much part of the devil's weaponry in our day and age, even now. And there are many ways in which the Lord, the Lord shows us that there is opposition to his work in our own land. There are many ways in which we see that. There are many ways in which people tend to perhaps nullify anything to do. There's discrimination against the church in so many ways. Discrimination at very many levels in our society. And of course, the opposition had this dimension to it as well. Uh, Sowing the seeds of of doubt and uh, deliberately uh, causing the people, if it was possible at all, to take their focus away from the Lord. Uh, Early on, uh, he said, uh, we we read, what are these feeble Jews doing? Weakness. You're weak. You're of no use. You're wimps. 
You can't do anything. Neither they could of their own strength. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? Will they? Will they? Will they? Yes, they will. But this was an attempt to make them believe that they would not. And there had to be something that was going to resist that. We'll see that in a short while. The seed of doubt was then being sown and always draws attention to the weaknesses that we may very well have and be aware of. Excuse me. And the enemy is very diligent in his research and his observations of the status quo in the Lord's cause at any point in time. And I think this is very, uh, very appropriate for us to take hold of that for ourselves here in St. Peter's. We have to be careful that we're not taking things for granted because there is opposition, spiritual opposition, real opposition against the Lord's work, and we have to be careful that we ourselves are not sucked into that unwittingly. The enemy's agents want to obscure God from the mind of his servants and focus on themselves so that vigilance is required. Look at what uh, Tobiah says in verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, that is, beside some bullet, and he said, yes, what they are building if a fox goes up on it, perhaps uh, the fox will just knock the wall down. It's so weak. What they're doing is of no use, no consequence. But again, the building work was not their own. The building was going to be a, a mighty fortress. And that is what we have to bear in mind all of the time that as Christ said to Peter on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As we go uh, down uh, the, the chapter, we find that it's very reassuring. And as we see that coming through in uh, parts of this chapter, in uh, Nehemiah's petitions to the Lord and his communication with God and the work of the people, their focus, as we'll, we'll see for in a short while, that God's plan, this is what it was. The foundation of the church is the Lord himself. God's project, that is what it is. And God will bring it to completion in his own way, in his own time in spite of all the opposition. And, of course, we find the supreme opposition portrayed for us on the cross of Calvary where the victory was won. So what we have here is opposition in terms of mockery and jeering. And later on down the chapter, we read that uh, there is this plot in verse 8 uh, where we read... Uh, they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Confusion. Confusion is what the devil wants to create amongst the people of God. Uh, making our minds 
less than clear, bringing a, a sort of fog into our minds so that our thinking is not in accordance with the promises and belief, trust in the promises of the Lord. And what we have to remember is that nothing will prevail against the Lord. Uh, again, historically, Isaiah had prophesied to the people to remind them of that. And in, in Isaiah chapter 54, allow me to read one or two verses. Verse 15, if anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. This is God speaking. If anyone attacks you, it will not be my doing. He permits it, yes. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. Well, it didn't seem that way at that time. See, it is I who created the blacksmith who fans the coals into flame. And then uh, the next version, Isaiah 54, verse 17, no weapon formed against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me. You will refute every tongue that accuses you. And this is what was being done. They were being accused of weakness and everything negative was being uh, applied to them. And there was also a, a danger of internal opposition, if you like. When we come to verse 10, it's, uh, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. How often have you felt like that within this Christian fellowship? There's far too much to do. There's uh, not enough people to cope. Can't cope with, with all that has to be done. And, well, might as well pack it all in and, and give it up. This was a real threat. And it can start in a subtle corrosive way. Earlier on, uh, we read in verse 8, they all plotted together. This is the enemies. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Some of the, uh, the Judeans, the people of God, they were living out with the borders of this wall. And they were, uh, in a sense, uh, in close proximity to those who would uh, oppose them and uh, plot against them. And word got into their ears. And that is why we find them uh, coming back and pleading uh, with Nehemiah, as it were, to, to uh, come and to help. So what we find here is in Judah. It's interesting that isn't it? in Judah it was said, we learn from uh, the scriptures that the tribe of Judah was supposed to be the strongest, bravest of all the tribes. It was the tribe of great kings and ultimately the tribe from which the lion of the tribe of Judah came, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself. So it was a special challenge and a discouragement to have this word come from the tribe of Judah. Is it possible that it might come from St. Peter's. I trust not, and I hope not, I pray not. So we have to put up 
the whole armor of God as we have it. And we find that being recorded for us later on in this chapter, how uh, Nehemiah uh, consolidates the troops. But before we come to that, I want to talk about this second uh, heading that I've taken of communion. Now, what do I mean by that? Where, where, is, uh, where is the idea of communion? What, uh, how can we define that? Well, I think, first of all, from the outset of this book, as Harry has pointed out to us, there was a communication, a communion between God and Nehemiah, Nehemiah and his God. And that communion was brought from above, or it came from above, downwards, and the leadership, Nehemiah particularly, uh, made sure that all of the people were aware of God being in this. There are two uh, instances of prayer in this uh, particular chapter, communion with God. Hear, O God, verse 4, after this uh, jeering by Sanballat and Tobiah, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back the thought on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the, of the builders. And I think the last phrase, the end of verse 5, is the key to why Nehemiah is praying in such a way. He is recognizing the God who is, who, whom he is addressing. Hear, O our God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God who brought them out, delivered them from the land of Egypt out of the, the house of slavery. And the God who is being referred to by Nehemiah is a God who is of purer eye than to look upon sin. He, is, he will not tolerate this offense, this opposition that is being uh, given by Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and all the others who are out there uh, militant against the work of the rebuilding of the wall. So what we find here is that communion is important. It's important at the vertical level and it's important at the horizontal level. One of the, the wonderful things uh, we find here, all that happens uh, in Nehemiah, it, it ju just hinges on this. And I think if we want to define this word in the context, we would talk about working together as one, God being with us. God with us together as one. Communion with God, our fellowship, as the Apostle John writes in his letter, in the first chapter of the first letter, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And of course, following on from that, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin, salvation. So that, as I mentioned earlier, this the vertical and the horizontal aspects of this communion borne out, I think, in the passage. Nehemiah was a man of God. He prayed here to God on two occasions. Uh, if we go down to verse 9, 
after the plot, they all plotted, uh, verse 8, they plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. We prayed to our God. That's corporate prayer. Praying together. They worked together. They prayed together. They suffered together. They looked to God together. They will not know uh, our enemies said they will not know, verse 10, they will not, sorry, verse 11, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now, there is the devil's objective summarized right there. This was at a human level, but it's deeper than that. The devil is out to uh, come secretly. He uses secrecy and very wily ways of attacking the people of God. And what he wants to do is to kill the Lord's people. But the Lord's people say in response to that, and I'm sure Nehemiah would have been familiar with the words of Psalm 118, I shall not die but live, and shall the works of God discover. I will perform the works of the Lord. What a wonderful uh, man Nehemiah was in God's hand. What a, 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 depending, a, a dependent on God man. And what an example he is to us. What a leader he was for the people. So in verse 14, Nehemiah, he's still in communion with God. And I like these uh, words in verse 14. And I looked and I rose and I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. I think the key words there are remember the Lord. Now, he's not referred to in that context as the God of covenant, Yahweh, what he's being refer who he's being referred to as the God of strength. Notice he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Remembering who God is. Remembering the historical aspects of what God had done in their history long, long ago, and how he had uh, chastised them, punished them for the disobedience, but still brought a remnant back from the Babylonian captivity so that his purposes of salvation would continue. Don't be afraid of them. Fear has to be dispelled. Fear not, says Jesus to his disciples often enough. Remember the Lord, what he has said and done and what he promises yet to do. And isn't it appropriate that we are going to be remembering the Lord in a few minutes? I wasn't aware that we were going to have communion tonight when I first started looking at this. But the Lord has his ways, and this is what we are being asked to do. 
at St. Pete's together as a congregation to work together, to stay together, and to look to God and to remember him in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is great and awesome. He who was dead now lives. He is ascended with a victory over death and over the grave. And because of that, should we not work together? Should we not fight the good fight of faith together in St. Peter's? And should we not encourage one another uh, to do that? It is right for us, I think, as a congregation right now, and to remember that under God, we can do all things. We can't, without me, you can do nothing, he says, but we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. I think that was effectively the thinking of Nehemiah in this chapter. So, conflict, communion, and finally and briefly, consolidation. Now, the rest of the chapter from verse verse 15 downwards, it shows to us that uh, Nehemiah, as it were, reorganized the, uh, the way in which the people were building And he put them, as it were, on alert in case there was an attack from any quarter. In verse uh, 18, for example, each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Remember the Lord. And Nehemiah was realistic about the weaknesses and uh, the brokenness that was in certain places, the, the liabilities that there were. And that is where the leadership of this congregation has to be uh, very vigilant and very uh, perceptive about where the weak, the weaknesses are in our uh, congregation, in our fellowship, in the work of the gospel amongst us. It's not a case of, ah, God will do it anyway. Our God will fight for us, but at the same time, we have to be involved keeping in step with the leading of God as he takes us on. So in spite of all the discouragement and opposition, Nehemiah kept a cool head in the knowledge that God had frustrated the enemy's plans. Seems to be uh, his rally cries, right, onwards and upwards. You know, it's very easy for us to say that many a time. Speaking from my own experience, I know that there are times in our lives where we want to jack it in, and even in the Lord's work, the accuser will tell us, you're not up to it. You're not doing as much as you ought to be doing. You're not strong enough. And the focus is then drawn in on ourselves into our own black hole, as it were. The work was to continue in parallel with vigilance and preparedness for battle 
if required. Perhaps some of you will remember the political rally cry, rally cry of Tony Blair years ago. I'm not making a, a political uh, propaganda statement here. I'm just using it as an example. Education, education, education. Well, perhaps Nehemiah was doing something of the same thing. But what he had was the need for this organization, organization, organization. The God who was above the work is a God of order. The end of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The Lord likes his service to be done with decency and in order. And I think that is coming through here as well. Nehemiah is realistic here. The work is extensive. The work is hard. The work is difficult. And there are great uh, difficulties that, you know, problems arise. Wherever you hear the, the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. The trumpet of rallying together, working together. Faith in God is required. Nehemiah is realistic, but he is also aware of the fact that if God is for us, who can be against us and prevail against us? There is nobody. Nevertheless, if God is on our side, who can prevail? And thankfully, the Lord is stronger. Greater is he, says John, that is in you than he who is in the world. So what we need, as was displayed here, I think, in Nehemiah's uh, practice is faith in God, dedication to him, and commitment to his work. That was on display. And you know, if anybody needs to hear this sermon, I do. Because it's very easy for my commitment to flag and fail. We use various excuses for not being as diligent as we ought to be. Our self-discipline sometimes leaves a lot lacking. The wall would be cemented together in reciprocation of the covenantal love of Jehovah, Yahweh, for his own people. I don't know what they used for mortar in these days, Nehemiah's day. But the wall, when it was built, was solid. It was resistant. And that is the kind of wall that Christ is building around his church constantly. God is going to be, and is, he promises to be as a wall of fire around his people and as the glory in their midst. And here we have, at the very end of this chapter, this uh, consolidation, neither, and the commitment in making that cons uh, consolidation come to, uh, come to reality. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his hand. I know this for myself, but sometimes I'm too thick-skinned for it to m make its mark on me personally. The, spirit, the, the warfare of the Christian the building work, the work that goes on is a 24-7 thing. And we thank God that even when we sleep, he gives his beloved sleep. 
Psalm 1 to 7. And behold, look, he that keeps Israel, he slumbers not, nor sleeps. Oh, we thank God for that. So that's the consolidation. There is the conflict, there is the communion, which is central to the whole aspect of this work for Nehemiah and for us as well. It is only as far as we are in communion with God and dependent on him that we will resist opposition from outside and take action to shore up where weaknesses exist. So just a final word by way of brief application. I've done a little of that already, but it's hard to have opposition but that's not the reality. It's hard to have opposition. But spirit, the real spiritual warfare is what we would expect to happen amongst the Lord's people. Spiritual warfare is where we need God and we need each other. We're reminded in Ephesians 6 that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness, the spirits of the powers of the air. And it's tough to be discouraged. We need to focus on what God has done for us together through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to identify, as I said, and shore up weaknesses where and if. Uh, maybe the if is not required, but they do exist because we are fragile without God. But most important is looking to our leader. They had a leader in the flesh at that time, Nehemiah, chosen by God and blessed by God. We don't have a minister. Just now we're in a weekend. We have leadership, collective leadership in the eldership. And can I ask you to pray for the elders, each and every one of them, with his own individual needs and our collective responsibility in seeking to lead this congregation as God would have us. But most important of all is to look to him who has loved us and gave, given himself for us. In the words of Nehemiah, remember the Lord and remember that our God will and is fighting for us. We have a high priest. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous the one who has the scars on his hands and his feet and his side and who presents himself as the, the risen Savior representing all for whom he died. May God bless to us our meditation. Let's bow our heads in a short word of prayer. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? We thank you, Lord, that you are above us and beneath us, that you walk by us when we are needing comfort, and that uh, when things really drop for us, we know that the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. We thank you for the lessons we learn from your word, and we pray, Lord, that we would take even more from your word 
than we are able to do. Give us that ability to devour your teachings, Lord, that we might indeed be co-workers with you in the building of your church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come now together to partake of the Lord's table, we need to be reminded that while Nehemiah was talking about building, it's done. Christ is the cornerstone, the sure foundation. There's nothing more to be laid than that. We don't, we're not called to build walls. Christ has done it all. And this table is part and parcel of the gospel. It points us to Christ and what he's done, his one sacrifice. It's not a call to say, get out there and do more for me. It's a matter of reminding us he's done it all. He loved us so much. It's good news. Secondly, while it points us to the sacrifice of Christ in the past, this isn't a sacrifice. It's a meal. We need to be sustained by feeding, by faith in Christ more and more. So it reminds us of that. And thirdly, as we'll read here, and I read the the words of institution in uh, 1 Corinthians, we're to do this and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's looking forward to the time when we'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And enjoy what Christ has finished for us. So sure, this looks back to the finished work of Christ. And it assures us, it calls us to faith, but it assures us of faith. We're to feed on Christ by faith as we partake, but look forward to the time when we'll be his totally. Hear now the words of institution from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. It's a call to examine ourselves. It's a call to put our faith totally in Christ, not what we do, and feed on him now and throughout our lives. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you with hearts overflowing in gratitude for the wonder of the gospel, that you've done it all. You loved us from before the foundation of the world, So much that you came, became flesh, and died in our place. 
Oh, Lord, fill our hearts with joy and thankful obedience. Change us, remake us, strengthen us now as we feed on you in faith. These things we pray for the greater glory of our King, in whose name we ask it. Amen. Ask the elders to come. Let's look to the Lord once more in prayer. Lord, how we thank you that you went willingly to the cross, that you counted it a joy to redeem us, to have your body broken, your blood poured out, that we might enter into fellowship with you. Lord, may the wonder of that, the joy of that, move us, change us, remake us. May the gospel be our life, our joy, our delight. We thank you for what you've done. And pray that our lives might be a a pleasing aroma to you for what you've done for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we close worship by singing Psalm 24. Is that right, Stephen? You ready? Okay. And then we'll stand for singing that and then remain standing for the benediction.
now to the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.